This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Brian Whedon. I'm the technical director, or sorry, technical advisor at Secure World Foundation. Um, apologies on behalf of Victoria Sampson, our Washington Office Director. She was held up this morning, uh, so I'm just going to give a, a quick welcome to everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, we look forward to having a very interesting discussion over the next hour and a half or so uh, about the space policy challenges that are facing the second Obama administration. Um, before I turn it over to Scott, who's going to moderate, I'd just like to say for those who don't know us, uh, Secure Real Foundation, we are a nonprofit organization. We're headquartered in Colorado with offices here in D.C. as well as in Brussels. And our focus is on the long-term sustainable use of outer space and the use of space for benefits here on Earth. And we do a lot of work in terms of awareness and facilitation among different stakeholders in trying to accomplish both those goals. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to Scott. Okay. Great. Hey, thanks, Brian. Uh, <clears throat> welcome to everyone, and uh, glad you could all be here. It's certainly going to be, uh, I think, a pretty wide-ranging uh, discussion. I'll try to cover uh, all the major sectors of uh, space policy, uh, civil, military, uh, national security, as well as uh, commercial. And we have a range of uh, space policy experts here today uh, who can speak to all of those, uh, all of those sectors. Uh, what we're going to do is start with uh, brief uh, uh, opening comments, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so, uh, by uh, each one of our, our panelists. And uh, then we'll go into, uh, into Q&A. And uh, um, if anybody is shy, which I don't, looking around this crowd, I don't think so, uh, I'm happy to uh, start off with the, the, the questions, but uh, I don't think we'll have any problems generating questions. Um, so really, uh, with that, I'd like to start with uh, Marsha Smith, who I'm sure many of you know from her, uh, a lot of, not only her longtime service in D.C. and work in on all kinds of different commissions and Congressional Research Service, but also uh, her website, uh, Space Policy Online, which is a nice uh, resource for our students. And so we now get to see her in person. Marcia? Well, thank you. So uh, we divided up the panel, and my task is to talk about the Civil Space Program. And uh, I guess Patricia's going to talk commercial and satellite and everything, and, and we'll go down the line that way. So uh, I'm just going to pique your interest. and. Uh, when I first was asked to do this, I thought, well, you know, there won't be too many space policy issues, you know, in the second term and everything. But when you start actually writing them down, there are an awful lot of space policy issues, and I think all of us are going to continue to be very busy for the next four years. Uh, the way I look at it, there are two big, broad categories of space policy issues facing the uh, Obama administration in the second term. One is domestic, and one is international. Thank you very much. And, again, this is a very top level, but I think on the... Domestic level, the most important thing the Obama administration is going to have to do is to continue working to reestablish trust with Congress. Everybody in the room knows about all that happened in 2010 and what's transpired since then, and I do think that the relationship has somewhat improved these days, but I still sense that there is a little bit of nervousness on the part of Congress as to whether or not NASA is actually really committed to SLS and Orion and whether or not they're going to proceed with that program with the same vigor that they want to uh, pursue commercial crew. And we all know that the budget situation is not going to be getting any better. And budget mismatch is another one of my big issues, I think, for the next four years that I'll be talking about in a minute. 
But I think that there's going to continue to be this tension between the two ends of Pennsylvania Avenue as to whether or not uh, there, there's enough trust between the two sides to have an effective space policy for the nation as a whole. And I think that although NASA will certainly tell you that it knows what its strategic direction is, and Charlie Bolden has said that many, many times, I'm not sure there are a lot of people who feel the same way. And even though you can look at the words on paper, and you can look at the National Space Policy, and, and you can look at the 2010 NASA Authorization Act, there's just this sense of unease that maybe the asteroid mission was not the right choice, maybe we need to rethink that, and at least for human spaceflight, we really need to uh, be looking at a different strategic direction. And I'm sure you all know that the National Research Council was just about to start a study. Their first meeting is on December 19th uh, in response to the language in the 2010 NASA Authorization Act to look at specifically the human spaceflight program. And it may well be that that study, when it comes out, is a vehicle for reassessing these things. But the report won't be out until 2014. And I'm not sure that we can really wait that long. So I, I sort of am anticipating this two-year period where there's still a lot of uncertainty. And I think that the only way to move through these things is for both sides to trust each other, that they're both working towards the same goals, and, and they both want to, the nation to succeed. And, and that's why I think trust is the most important thing that they need to work on domestically. And I also think that, that you need that in the international sphere. I do think that the ExoMars situation uh, was not a positive light for the United States. And what still amazes me is that ESA has taken it so well. And uh, Jim Green, who's the head of planetary science at NASA, keeps saying that ESA reacted with vision and not with anger. And they have. And in fact, ESA just announced last week after the ministerial that they're going to be working with us on the Orion program. They seem to be elated that uh, we've agreed to put them in the critical path. I was interested to learn after that from uh, NASA briefings that it's only for the first two Orions. It's not an ongoing thing. It really was uh, put together in order for ESA to be able to compensate NASA for the common operating cost of the space station. And you can do that with two of the service modules for Orion. And Bill Gerstenmaier has said that NASA will be getting the intellectual property for that and the United States will be building the future service modules. But the fact that there is still this desire on the part of our European partners to cooperate with the United States so closely, even after what happened with ExoMars, I really find quite interesting. But I still think that there was a lot of work to do for the United States to demonstrate to all of its partners that it is a reliable partner and that they can trust us when we say that we're going to be doing a project with them jointly. So those are the two big broad areas, it's trust domestically and trust internationally. But there are a lot of other issues that are also going on. Uh, two of them are being dealt with probably today up on the Hill in the National Defense Authorization Act, and that's how to get NASA another waiver to the Iran-North Korea-Syria Non-Proliferation Act in SNA. And Senators Hutchison and Nelson have amendments. They, they're different from each other as to how they would do it. We can talk about it if you're interested. But uh, those amendments are pending. But something needs to be done on INCSNA pretty soon. Because even though NASA can contract for services through 2016, 2016 is closer than you think. So they really need to get that fixed pretty soon. And they also need an extension to the third-party liability indemnification provisions, which run out at the end of December. So those are two near-term issues that hopefully will get resolved. You never can tell with Congress. 
after all my years uh, working in Washington, I know never to try and predict what Congress is going to do. But anyway, they are working on that at least. But the bigger issue is this budget mismatch that all of us know about. NASA for probably decades, but at least a decade, has been asked to do too much with too little. The situation is getting worse, not better. I don't want to get into the whole fiscal cliff thing because that's all too uncertain and none of us knows how it's going to turn out. But the one certainty is that the budget situation is going to be pretty grim going forward. And the 2010 NASA Authorization Act, as good as it was in reaching a compromise between what the White House wanted and what Congress wanted, the way I look at it, it simply is not affordable. Basically, there was a problem that the Obama administration felt the Constellation program was not affordable, so they came up with commercial crew, and the compromise was to do both, because SLS Orion are the big ticket items you know, in Constellation. So if you couldn't do the one, how can you do both? So I think that this is a big problem, and uh, I don't know if we're looking at a train wreck that's going to happen in the next year or two, or if we're just going to end up stretching out programs. You know, you can get a program done on a limited budget, you just keep pushing everything out and pushing everything out, and the International Space Station is the prime example of that. It took us 25 years to build the International Space Station instead of the 10 years that it was supposed to take. And it cost either 60 or 100 billion dollars, depending on who's doing the math, instead of 8 billion. And not all of that was just because of the schedule delays and everything, but there was an element of that in it. And so there, there are lessons to be learned there, and I don't think we're learning them. Everybody is still thinking short term, they're thinking, you know, how do you get over the next quarter or the next year? And I give uh, Charlie Bolden and Beryl Gorsenmeyer and John Grunsfeld and Beth Robinson a lot of credit for being able to take pennies from here and pennies from there and glom them all together and keep all these balls up in the air, but I don't think that that is sustainable. And I do think that we are going to reach a point where some hard choices are going to be made. One of the choices could be to just keep stretching everything out, and we end up paying five or six times more for them than they should cost. That's one line of reasoning. But another line of reasoning is just to decide maybe we just can't do all these things, and we're going to have to make some very hard choices. So I think that the next four years are going to be filled with those kind of decisions. And I think there's still a question about NASA's priorities. Uh, Senators uh, Nelson Hutchin and Hutchison and uh, Jack Lew and uh, Charlie Bolden reached an agreement last year that the priorities, they call them three priorities, I call them five, uh, SLS and Orion, ISS and Commercial Crew, and JWST. So those are NASA priorities. But are those NASA's priorities until Senator Hutchison retires in a couple of weeks? Are they NASA's priorities until the programs are completed? Are they NASA priorities until the next NASA strategic plan comes out? I don't know the duration of these priorities. And, and I think that some thought is going to have to be given to that. And one of the areas is, that's very interesting to me is climate change. And everybody pointed out that that didn't come up with presidential debates or anything. But suddenly, Superstorm Sandy sort of got everybody's attention again on climate change. So. The President Obama had a big initiative in Earth Science Satellites when he first came into office. It fell by the wayside because of budget concerns. But now, after Superstorm Sandy and all the devastation in New Jersey and New York, are they going to reconsider that? Is that going to become a higher priority? I think that this is going to be a very interesting set of issues to watch. On the uh, commercial front, and here I'm using commercial sort of in the government sense, not the commercial sense of commercial. You know, commercial crew has to prove itself. 
commercial cargo has to prove itself. Yes, it has worked, and congratulations to SpaceX. Definitely, it's great. Uh, but there was that little engine failure thing, and, and I think that that's going to be an interesting test of how the government and the company works together, and how transparent the process is going to be, and, and what the company is going to have to do to convince NASA that yes, they understand the problem, and they fixed it, and it's not going to happen again. And, uh, and not to dredge up old bad things, but there was that little problem with an orbital launch vehicle, and, and orbital promised NASA that it understood it, and, and then it put another Earth science satellite in the drink. And so I, I think that I think that what happens with the engine investigation on, on SpaceX is going to be very interesting for the future of these commercial, which I actually think are more public-private partnership arrangements, not commercial arrangements. And I think that. There are lessons to be learned from the commercial public-private partnership efforts that we've had already on EELV and on commercial remote sensing that people are not learning. And I think that it would be useful to have some sort of dialogue about the lessons from that. And to me, what I walk away from is that both sides in these arrangements are very fickle. They make an, an agreement, and then when the agreement doesn't work out, they change their mind. So NGA told two companies that they were going to be getting money, and then NGA changed its mind. It's like, too bad. Sorry. You know, and on EELV, the companies had decided that they were going to give a fixed-price contract to the government, and then the market didn't develop the way they thought, and the government said, ah, well, the deal's going to have to change, or we're not going to build rockets anymore. So, you know, both sides are looking out for their own interests. That's understandable. But if you're going to have a coherent space program, you have to find a way to work with these issues. And I think there are lessons there to be learned. And especially as there become more and more of these commercial projects, I think that uh, the government needs to be a smart partner and the private sector needs to be a smart partner so there are no really unpleasant surprises that come along. And uh, I think it's interesting to see what happens with this announcement on Thursday of this company, Golden Spike. And, uh, and what they're going to be doing, rumors are they're going to build a private uh, lunar base. And there's the B612 Foundation, and I think NASA is being very encouraging to a lot of these things. But, but is there a limit as to how far the government can go? I'm thinking with B612, for example, that NASA is going to provide deep space network services. Well, suppose there are 20 of these organizations, all well-intentioned, all getting money from private sources. You know, can NASA give deep space network resources to all of them? I mean, is it... It's not just the money, and I, I don't actually know if they get reimbursed for it, but it's the amount of time that you have on the day ascent. There's a finite amount of time. So there are a lot of these issues, I think, that need to be worked out. And just very quickly, because I think I'm using up my time, and I had my timer running, but my screen's gone blank, and so now I don't know how much time I've used up. <laughs> how are we doing, Scott? <coughs> so uh, I, I wanted to mention some of the other agencies. So um, Landsat, one of my favorite programs of all time, and we are all going to be crossing all of our fingers and all of our toes, right, on February 11th for the launch from Vandenberg. And we can only hope that it gets up there safe and sound. But what comes after that? The Obama administration had a plan to transfer it all over to USGS. Congress didn't think it was a very good plan, so it's all up in the air. There's another National Research Council study. Uh, it's supposed to come out probably in the March time frame on a sustained land imaging program. So I think this somehow has to be given to them. Landsat has a lot of users who are uh, passionate about it. And uh, they, they've been very successful, I think, as a community arguing in favor of Landsat. So if there's going to be a Landsat, who's going to pay for it? Is this another, I was almost going to say albatross, but I would not use that word. Is this another activity that NASA is going to have to fund within its constrained budget? 
or is it an activity that USGS is going to have to fund within its constrained budget? So you have a very good program, but how are we going to get it done? On weather satellites, I think NOAA has at least as big, if not bigger, of a credibility program on Capitol Hill at NASA. And I don't know what their solution is going to be. The whole fact that the price tag for JPSS is $12.9 billion, and even though $4 billion or so of that is sunk costs in NPOs, it's a lot of money because the initial uh, grouping is just four satellites, two big ones and two little ones. And there's a lot of dismay about NOAA's project management, so I think that there's a big concern about what's going to be happen happening with NOAA weather satellites. And I also sense on the Hill that there's some uh, lack of confidence that there's really going to be a gap. NOAA is making a big issue about this gap, and they recently put out a request for public comment. They're inviting everybody in the public to tell them how to deal with this potential gap. But when you look at the launch dates, there's really not a gap. And so what NOAA's trying to explain is that it can take you up to 18 months to validate the data and, and you know get the spacecraft actually operating, and that's the gap they're looking at. It's not so much the physical presence of the satellite, but I think that's a very hard argument to make. So I think that NOAA is going to have some very interesting policy issues. And uh, the last one I'll mention, just to get it out on the table in case anybody wants to talk about it, is the FAA passenger safety regulations. They can't uh, do that until 2015, but 2015 is within this next two-year term, uh, second term. And so I think that uh, that's something that will also be very interesting to watch. So there are lots of other issues, and one of them that I find absolutely fascinating is spectrum. And Patricia said she was going to talk about it, and Scott is certainly an expert on it, so I will pass that one off to them. Patricia? Hi, everyone. Uh, let's see. Let me get this going here. Thank you. Um, representing the commercial satellite sector means that because we sit at the nexus of the space world and the communications world, we can't just look at space policy to see what's going to affect us and our sector in the year ahead. So uh, we took a look at kind of more broadly across all of government to see what might affect the commercial satellite world, but also might, what might affect the space community, uh, not just in space policy. And we came up with um, four topics. I think uh, some of them we'll share. Um, but uh, the four that I came up with were on-orbit safety, hosted payloads, ITAR, yes, it's third on my list, but it's still near to my heart, um, and Spectrum. So those are the four areas where I think um, there's a lot to watch and there's a lot to affect and a lot of consequences for our uh, combined sectors here. On on-orbit safety, um, there are really, I think, two points that I wanted to raise here. I'll leave the international implications of the International Code of Conduct and maybe even copious to, the, to, the, uh, to my colleagues to the left. Um, as important as those are, I do think there are two things that we're going to be watching from the commercial satellite side. One of them is um, the uh, emphasis or acceptance that the U.S. military places on um, their interaction with commercial operators of satellites. Um, I think the commercial satellite sector, to its credit, has invested an enormous amount of money and time and effort in on-orbit safety um, in the embodiment of the Space Data Association, a not-for-profit um, technical group that exchanges ephemeris data, it also looks at RF interference, um, and how the U.S. military is going to feel comfortable working with that organization, which has a, a community of members that is different and broader than just U.S. space operators, it is going to be one, I think, that's going to come to a head in this year, because there's just too much interest 
in, um, and too much invested, literally, uh, on orbit to uh, miss a good idea. And how you can come to grips with interacting with an organization that has uh, diverse international players in it, with data that's important and has to be safeguarded, I think is going to be an area to watch in, in the year ahead. So how, in particular, the Strategic Command interacts with the Space Data Association, how formalized or how comfortable that organization, um, that organizational interaction uh, emerges, I think is going to be an area to watch in the year ahead. Certainly one that the commercial satellite industry thinks is important. Um, the other aspect of on-orbit safety is one I just think is going to be interesting to watch. I don't know how it's going to unfold. Um, how many of you read Politico? Any of you? I know we're all space people here, but Politico. Here's something interesting. The FCC chairman on the front of Politico with the headline, up next for the FCC, space communications. They don't mean me. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I think the FCC uh, it, and the FAA, there's a gray area in regulation between where the FCC regulates commercial communication satellites that emanate in the civil, uh, civil frequencies, and the FAA regulates the launch. And there's a pretty big gray area in between of uh, CubeSats and all kinds of other space activity. I would watch in the year ahead um, how that gray area is narrowed and who takes what, um, what piece of that regulatory no-man's land. Um, partly because both agencies have very different statutory uh, heritages, both have very different regulatory approaches and experiences, and, uh, and I think it also indicates a certain um, governance uh, approach that the, uh, that the Obama administration has been, has been looking at. So watch that gray space. Um, in two agencies, you may not watch that often. We obviously do with the FCC. Um, so those are my on-orbit safety uh, flags that I'm going to be watching for the year ahead. Um, another area that is, is not pure space, but is certainly a, a, an important policy area coming from not, not just the, the military, but also across the civil space community is hosted payloads, um, which everyone, almost everyone to, to a man agrees that hosted payloads, the idea of, of um, uh, government or military payloads on the uh, taking advantage of the regular and relatively quick cadence of commercial satellites going to orbit, is a good idea. It allows quicker access to, to orbit, it allows uh, considerable cost savings, it allows all kinds of potential experiments and, and applications to be fielded in a way that the large government programs haven't traditionally been able to execute and in a constrained budget um, have even more challenges. But it is a very complex uh, uh, contemplation of um, converging interests and sharing risks um, with communities that, that aren't used to sharing those risks. Uh, and I think the, um, the two areas that we've been seeing a lot of activity, uh, the Space and Missile Command has certainly been doing a lot of work on um, framing how hosted payloads might look and how they ought to look and what the options are and what the value propositions look like for the military and for the government. Those, many of those are being relied upon by civil space agencies like NASA and NOAA to try and, um, try and capitalize on hosted payloads as an opportunity as they watch their budget shrink. The uh, manufacturers and uh, commercial operators from, the, from my community, this, the commercial satellite sector, are absolutely convinced that this is something that can close a business case and is a good partnership to pursue. But the, the X factor is this, um, this administrative and programmatic uh, bureaucracy and structure 
that the U.S. government is, is left with after just a heritage of programs and also the responsibility of spending you know, public money. So I think the, that balance of a good idea with a lot of, of challenges to try and um, right-size is, is one that's going to continue to absorb a lot of, uh, lot of resources in the year ahead, uh, and, and rightfully so. ITAR. Um, we don't yet know whether satellite export control reform will be in this year's NDAA. You know, we're sort of watching every day. Um, I will say um, a couple things. One of them is I have never seen such a diverse and committed range of stakeholders and advocates across government agencies, um, the Commerce Department, State Department, Defense Department, um, the uh, the White House research universities research that I was going to go to to uh, that's so that in the administration on the Hill all the committees of record foreign affairs and um, armed services on both sides intelligence committees really see um, that this is an important issue to try and advance um, partly because of space industrial base concerns partly because of good governance um, partly because uh, uh, this has been asked for for so long. It is not an easy thing to try and bring all those diverse interests together on behalf of a pretty uh, also diverse set of requests and, and interests from industry or from the, from the regulated. So that would be the commercial satellite sector, the launch sector, the um, uh, research and, uh, and experimental satellite community, and, um, and a host of other folks. I, I think one of the things that we're finding is that it was done in the 1999 Strom Thurmond Act may not have been as broad as we thought it was. That is to say, the regulations may have only required a narrower scope of, of activity um, be limited um, than what we thought. I think the regulation, the application of that regulation was quite broad. And I think some of the communities are going to find that they may not need legislative relief <coughs> for regulatory relief. So um, there's still a great deal of optimism with all these combined interests and, I think, good faith efforts trying to um, to bring this issue into this year's NDAA and, and we'll know within a week or so whether that was successful. If it is included in legislation, what that would do is give authority back to the executive branch to regulate. And they would need to still um, issue a proposed rule, which they've already drafted and circulated. Industry and other stakeholders would have a chance to comment on it. And then, then there would need to be a notification of what's, what would move from one regulatory list to the other list. So there's still quite a lot of work to do, even if you get past the um, not inconsiderable goal line this year. Um, if it does not pass this year, we'll be back trying again, and I think with a much um, wider group of, um, of supporters than we've ever had. Finally, spectrum. <clears throat> we in the commercial satellite sector are, sector are used to sharing spectrum. It's something we do every day. We share it with each other. We share it with terrestrial interests. Um, but there is no question that there is a lot of pressure on efficient use of spectrum, which is an interpretive term, and, uh, and that, that interest in efficiency is driven primarily by um, the enormous commercial and consumer demand for, for this, for terrestrial mobile spectrum. So that's certainly the prompt. Um, there's also the not, in, not inconsequential uh, prompt of 
treasury. You know, when you when you find extra spectrum and you're able to auction or license it differently, there's the opportunity for quite a lot of, of new government revenue. Not inconsequential. But the result has been pressure on, um, on uh, civil spectrum uh, and on federal spectrum to look at who's using what and whether they're using it efficiently. There's also a lot of individual proposals that we're seeing at the FCC to utilize and share in the satellite, uh, in the satellite bands. Um, primarily, it had been in the in the lower um, S and L bands, which are used for for mobile satellite services. But we're certainly seeing it up uh, through the C bands from uh, terrestrial WiMAX, from terrestrial mobile, and other small cell proposals. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of work for um, for my sector, but I would also say for space uh, space operations broadly. Almost every space activity has some RF component because you need to. Um, you need to communicate throughout the, the launch and deployment phase. You may need to communicate while on orbit. And I think um, th those pressures on spectrum are certainly not limited just to the commercial sector. Um, what I've seen from my community is that most, most policymakers, most spectrum experts who are looking at spectrum allocation and spectrum policy don't know satellites and they don't know space. It is a very different architecture. There are very different um, RF interference assumptions that underlie them. And we have a lot of educating to do to ensure that the not only the the operations of our of our space-based systems are understood, but also their value. So that's what we see. That's what I would come up with. Thank you. Okay. Super. And uh, let me now uh, move over from the civil and uh, commercial side over to more of the national security sides. Brian. Well, good afternoon. Um, tough act to follow. Uh, I'm going to focus a bit more on the national security aspects, uh, but not necessarily the whole enchilada. I'm going to focus my remarks this afternoon on space situation awareness, uh, largely because it's the cornerstone of a lot of what the U.S. faces in terms of protecting their satellites uh, and dealing with a lot of the national security concerns they have with continuing to use space. Um, and a lot of those revolve around trying to find solutions to the governance problems you've got by 10 launching countries, 50 states operating satellites, a thousand active satellites, and a half million pieces of debris, all in the same region, all trying to do their own thing. That is a very complex problem. Uh, and a large part of that is how do we know what's going on and be able to figure out uh, behavior, be able to figure out threats, be able to figure out uh, you know, how we're going to tackle some of those issues. Uh, I'm going to break space situation awareness down into two parts. There's the data part, uh, how do we get information from sensors, and then there's the back-end processing part. Um, on the data part, there has been progress over the last several years within the Department of Defense, particularly the U.S. Air Force. Um, there are several capabilities that are either coming online or are much closer to coming online that are going to have a positive effect. You have things like the Space Based Situation Awareness Satellite, SBSS. Uh, it was launched uh, in 2010 and was finally declared IOC uh, this past August, after about two years. Um, that is providing much greater coverage of deep space at the geostationary belt and ability to do wide surveys and, you know, uh, deal with some of the issues we had of problems and coverage with uh, ground-based optical telescopes that are limited by day-night cycles and weather. Uh, we're also approaching the final stages of S-band fence and uh, you know we're getting close to the point we're going to be able to issue a final contract 
to award actually going out and building it. Um, there was the announcement that the first S-band fence installation is going to be on Kwajalein Atoll, uh, which has benefits from both a geographic standpoint, it's in the middle of the Pacific, it's close to the equator, uh, and there's also some existing SSA infrastructure there that can be leveraged. Um, that's a pretty good point forward. Um, although I did notice that the language surrounding the S-band fence has gone from three installations to two to three installations to most recently one to two installations. Uh, so <laughs> that's probably not unexpected given uh, budget pressures, uh, but that is going to limit somewhat the utility of the system from what it was originally envisioned. Uh, there's also a recent announcement of the move of an older C-band mechanical tracking radar from Antigua to Western Australia. Uh, again, that has benefits from geography concerns. Uh, it begins to address this issue of how do we get better sensor coverage in the southern hemisphere. Uh, although it by itself is not going to solve the problem, uh, it's you know limited to about 200 or so objects a day in terms of the tracking capacity because it is a mechanical dish and it's not a phased array tracker. Um, so it's it's not a replacement for the S band fence. If, the, if there's an S band fence eventually in Australia, it's more of a complementary capability. Uh, on the optical side, there's also the announcement of a, a new telescope, uh, the SST, uh, that is going to be going to Australia, and that is going to provide more of a wide field coverage for the geostationary belt and deep space. So, all of those things all together are good progress on behalf of the Air Force on bringing new sensors, new capabilities online. But the second part of it is the back-end processing for all that data that's coming in. And that's where the choke point is. Uh, all these new sensor systems I mentioned, with the possible exception of the Antigua radar, all their capabilities are going to be limited by the existing back-end processing. Um, and this has been a choke point that's been known about for many years now. There's been many efforts over those last decade or so to tackle it, and I'm still not convinced that the military has the right solution. Uh, in September, I published a report called Going Blind. Uh, we had executive summaries up front that discussed these issues in quite a bit of detail. Um, and a few days later, the National Research Council issued their own report that looked at part of the same problem. They focused mainly on the astrodynamic standards. Uh, and both of us generally came to the same conclusion, that the Air Force and the military in general needs to expand the community of stakeholders that are involved in this process. That it's no longer just the U.S. Air Force that is the customer, that now the customer set is the U.S. government as a whole, as well as all the commercial actors, as well as international actors, um, and they all have a variety of different needs um, and they should be involved in the process of putting together what the solution is going to be. Now, I went a bit further in my analysis than the NRC did, um, and I actually looked at what I thought were the underlying drivers behind the inability of the military to deal with these issues. And the conclusion that I came to was that it's really that the institution and the culture are not able to deal with this type of challenge, and particularly building a complex, flexible, modern, information technology system that deals with a variety of users and data sources, both inside and outside of government. Um, I've rather facetiously said that, you know, if you gave that problem to Google or Facebook, their interns could do it over the summer for, you know, a couple million dollars. Um, 
there's a couple of interesting points in there. One is that in terms of bits and bytes, the problem we're looking at is few orders of magnitude smaller than the problems that the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles face every day. Uh, they're looking at hundreds of terabytes of data every day. Facebook's got a billion users. Um, uh, I mean, Google, every time you do a Google search, every one of those little ads on the page is the end result of an auction that was run in real time between when you click search and when the page showed up. I mean, they're solving a lot of these problems that are much more complex. That's not the issue. Um, two, it's not that the Google or Facebook interns are any smarter, but that they don't have a lot of the same institutional and cultural shackles that the people in the military have trying to solve these same problems. You've got to deal with stovepipe bureaucracies, you have to deal with you know, uh, legacy systems, you have to deal with all the acquisition problems, a lot of issues there. So when I looked at this, the conclusion that I came up with essentially, in order to solve this, uh, I thought that you needed to kick part of space situation awareness that deals with things that are not inherently military activities and in particularly managing the catalog outside of the military. Give that to somebody else to deal with that doesn't have some of those same uh, institutional and cultural shackles. In order to do that, I think you're going to have to address some of the issues with the classification um, and protection of data. Uh, because until you deal with that, I just don't see it realistic to be able to give that part of the mission to someone other than the military. So those are the two big problems that are parts of the issue that the U.S. government is dealing with in terms of SSA. But I'd like to emphasize that, the, uh, back to what Marcia said, there's a domestic issue and there's, a, there's an international side. The same thing here. Um, the answer is not just improving SSA for the U.S. military. It is in the national security interests of the United States to improve SSA for all space actors to some basic level. Um, and I'm going to quote something from the 2010 Obama space policy uh, that I think I like very much. It is in the shared interest of all nations to act responsibly in space to help prevent mishaps, misperceptions, and mistrust. The United States considers the sustainability, stability, and free access to and use of space vital to its national interest. Space operations should be conducted in ways that emphasize openness and transparency to improve public awareness of the activities of government and enables others to share in the benefits provided by the use of space. I think it's a very important statement and it, it outlines some pretty clear goals for where they need to go. But accomplishing that means not just improving SSA for the US. It means everybody that flies a satellite has to have a baseline level of SSA. And given that many of the countries up there don't have anything, that is a policy challenge for the United States. You've said doing this is in your own national security interests. How you go about that, whether you become the data provider for everybody in a more transparent manner than what's currently going on, or whether you bring them in, other space actors in as partners, uh, and leverage some of the capabilities they bring to share, or whether you work to develop capabilities for them or some external third party, there, there's you know, not a lot of easy choices there, especially from a political standpoint. So I think that's going to be a difficult task going forward in the next few years in solving the SSA problem, which, as I you know, started with, is a big part of the long-term sustainable use of space and some of the security issues we're dealing with. So. Okay, great.
and then to uh, clean it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's probably uh, appropriate. I know last year, I just someone Brian said he's not dealing with the whole enchilada. I'm going to try to deal with the whole enchilada, whole of government, <laughs> including space commerce and international you cooperation and, and, and issues of that nature. So, what I'm going to speak to as a as, as a project that um, was supported by the Square World Foundation. I'd like to uh, thank him very much for that again publicly here. Uh, this project started about oh, two two years ago or so. We met with a group of experts trying to look at. What would be some of the uh, challenges and issues in terms of trying to develop a comprehensive or maybe a more specifically focused uh, national space strategy? And then how would we go about trying to make that a reality, make that happen in, in, in uh, actuality? Uh, that led to a couple of publications, one through the journal I had called Astropolitics, and finally just this other week, um, a book that came out through the Space Power and Politics a series of Rutledge on space strategy in the 21st century, so if you're interested, um, you know, let me know this book's available now. Uh, I guess the first question that we tried to address in this project is, what exactly is strategy? And sometimes not everyone's on the same page when we talk about that, and we had a number of discussions in terms of trying to think about, well, what are the intellectual foundations that go into thinking about uh, space strategy? And in many ways, we came up with a formulation at the very generalized level that what really strategy is, it links fundamentally uh, power to purpose, it serves and fulfills policy in some specific way, and it also is a way in which any actor, you know, if we're talking about a state actor, like let's say the United States, it's a way to shape, influence, and adapt to the strategic environment that's out there. You know, and that includes a number of elements. I know the Department of Defense has talked a lot about space being congested, competitive, and to an extent contested by other actors. Uh, there's also a globalized environment that's out there as well. And how do we adapt? How do we shape that strategic guidance so that effort can be uh, very, very helpful? And then lastly, it's really about the ways and means. How do you go about making it happen? It really provides, in many ways, a top-level roadmap for thinking about how you're going to implement. What are your goals and objectives? I mean, we heard today from some of the other speakers a lot of challenges, but it's very specific challenges. But it's civil space policy, a lot of uncertainty, hard choices and trade-offs that are needed, uh, specific challenges on the export control side, specific challenges dealing with space situational awareness. A strategy can, can begin to address that and begin to lay out a roadmap for these are the choices we need to make. You know, we know that this community is generally played, particularly in the United States, by demands generally outstripping resources. You know, and, this, and I think this is true whether we think the budget is good or bad. I mean, you can go back through history and this has always been the the case and culture of the United States where we have much more on the plate that we would like to do than resources available. And making those hard choices can be facilitated by, by a strategic guidance, particularly when we're looking at coordination. Uh, I, as I mentioned uh, in my first few comments, how do you coordinate across the government and between the government and the commercial sectors? And also thinking about that in a globalized uh, setting in which space really is situated and exists today with all the additional actors, the global partnerships that are out there, et cetera, from the government side to the commercial side. So one fundamental aspect is that strategy can play a fundamental role to coordinate, better coordinate space activities. Now when you think about that across different domains, from space to air to land, we're talking about security or intelligence gathering, uh, for example, or even Earth observations, where you have a lot of those cross-domain activities in terms of data sharing and, 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 and integration type of activities from operations 
to, uh, to other activities, and also thinking across sectors. Um, traditionally, in the United States, we've had the problem of kind of separating our space programs into a nice civil area, security area, and a, um, and, 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 and a uh, commercial one. And thinking about how do you get those synergies developing. Clearly, we all understand there's a lot of synergies, a lot of commonalities, and you know, uh, the other panelists spoke to some of those today. How do we get that cross-sector guidance? Um, how can the different sectors, from security to commercial to civil, cooperate together? Uh, we can think about it in terms of space launch, or joint operations, or joint research and development. A lot of this does go on, but it tends to be ad hoc, and, and, and as a result of that, it, it can lead to uh, you know, failed outcomes. Uh, another aspect about coordination deals with what I would call optimization and harmonization. Optimization is being as effective or as efficient as possible. It's trying to utilize the resources you have for very, very specific purposes in the most feasible way. And that's very, very critical if we're talking about demands, all these hard stripping resources, and making those hard choices and trade-offs that are needed in implementing any type of program or project or policy that's out there. The other aspect is the harmonization aspect, which is kind of that horizontal aspect, which really is about how do you get past these stovepipes? And people talk about these stovepipes, particularly when we look at the acquisition worlds or some of the sectoring that goes on in the space community between uh, the civil security and commercial areas. There's a lot of stovepiping that exists, clearly on the management end, on the acquisitions end, on the program project end. How do you get across that? And the strategy can play a, a valuable role in terms of trying to harmonize, trying to harmonize and create some of those, uh, you know, to, to, to essentially try to break down some of those stovepipes that exist out there. That, that kind of laid down the intellectual basis, and then we came forward with a number of, of assumptions that kind of guided this uh, study and project. And one assumption was that, you know, we debated really what is it most feasible to go for? A very grand strategy that's going to try to encompass everything, or a more limited or focused strategy. Um, and we had an argument going back and forth on that. Many came to the realization, because of the political realities that are out there, we're, we're much more likely to be successful if we go for a more limited or focused strategy, like specific to space launch, or Earth observations, or maybe sharing some specific requirements between the civil and the, and the security area, or promoting international cooperation, norms of behavior. There's many, many specific ideas and strategies that you can lay out. Um, the other one was, you know, what I went back to again is, is demands outstripping resources. That again, it's a guide for the top level requirements, the budgets, the operations, the trade-offs that are needed in actually making any type of space activity uh, most efficient, most feasible. Uh, the cross-sector area that I mentioned, promoting cooperation, lessening the barriers between sectors and between processes when we're talking about stovepiping. Uh, a very critical assumption as well was the idea that a strategy would fulfill and realize a whole of government approach. I kind of mentioned this at the beginning. And this is not just about programs, projects, technologi uh, technologies, and capabilities. We all understand that we need that. I mean, obviously, this is a you know, technological engineering undertaking. But there's also the political, diplomatic, bureaucratic side, um, the managerial side, the legislative side that, that uh, Marshall Smith mentioned today. Uh, and a whole government approach allows us to, to deal with all these factors in a more comprehensive, uh, integrated way. Um, with that, we laid out that there really is a set of overarching strategic goals that, that all can share from. And from that basis, it's possible to work in the specific areas that I'll get to in a second. And, and those overarching goals, you know, and it's very easy to agree on them, is that 
we need to secure the space domain for peaceful uses. And this, was, this essentially just means sustainable uses of space. And we're clearly all after that. Uh, we need to protect our assets on orbit in space from the threats that are out there. Whether those are our, our natural threats of space weather, uh, man-made threats like orbital debris, or the potentiality of contested threats from other uh, and hostile space actors. And then also clearly to derive value across uh, many, many areas from security and intelligence, economic, space industrial base, commercial, civil, environmental. Uh, from that, let me mention a few uh, areas that we covered. And I'll just highlight a few of the ideas. Obviously, there's not time. You know, it's a 300-page book here. There's not time to go into a, a great length of uh, discussion here. I could give a whole course uh, covering this book, academic course. But let me highlight for you a few of the areas that we covered in this project and some of the um, key findings that I just wanted to highlight here for this short discussion. Um, we had a chapter on intellectual foundations. And in that chapter, I think what's insightful here, just to add to what I kind of stated earlier, is if you want to have a space strategy, you have to establish those intellectual foundations. And I really talk to those foundations. But it, you have to take it a step further. Because if you're going to go from a, an academic or theoretical understanding over to an understanding of how do we really make this happen, you need two critical things, or, or, or really three critical things. One is you need the political will. And there has to be top-level commitment. We really had agreement among the experts so that that will has to come from the top level. Um, you know, if we're talking about a government, you know, like the United States, that has to come from the, the presidential administration. There also, and many felt that even if you don't have a written document, if you just put into place a process for how to think more strategically, that's valuable in and of itself. That you don't have to result in a document, because that can be very, very daunting. You know, you go through dozens and dozens of changes, and you need interagency coordination, everyone has a different idea, but as long as you have the process of strategic thinking, that alone can have value, can begin to address some of these coordination, integration issues that, that we all struggle with in this community. And then lastly, it also was pointed out that while we need those elements, we need the foundations, the will, the process, we also need competent strategists. We need to educate and develop competent strategists out there who can think strategically. Um, because very often we, we lack that, uh, and there is a, there's a shortfall of individuals who are trained in that way to think on a more strategic um, basis. Uh, the next part of the project, we dealt with political challenges. And here's where we came to the realization, given the challenges that are out there, a much more focused, narrow approach to thinking about strategy in specific areas is much more feasible um, than a more grand, comprehensive uh, type of strategy. So we can think about you know, a space launch strategy or space observation strategy, maybe an SSA data sharing strategy, maybe a commercial partnership strategy. Um, you know, again, you can go on and on with the list, but it's trying to maybe look at specific ways in which you can begin to institutionalize some of the strategic thinking across the different uh, stakeholders and political actors that are out there. And thinking about it in specific areas makes it more um, uh, feasible. Uh, following that, we had a part of the project that the, the dealt with, and I'm going to kind of combine these two together, although we had two chapters on it, with governance and assurance. Uh, the realization on the governance side is that Space is very globalized, and any strategic choice we make is really an interdependent one. It's not a unilateral one. We exist in a very, very interdependent environment. Uh, space is a very, very globalized sector today, marked by multinational alliances on a commercial side, government-to-government -government alliances, 
Uh, a lot of international cooperation is going on out there. And part of that is, is how do we advance uh, a safe and sustainable way to operate in space. When talking about securing or sustainable uses of space and protecting space assets, we need responsible space, you know, we need responsible space behavior. And here's where things like norms, codes of conduct, uh, norms of behavior, codes of conduct becomes very, very important. Uh, and how do we establish that on the basis of what our shared strategic objectives are? And one very good idea that was put forward is that, well, why don't we try to establish an idea based on assurance? Not necessarily specifically deterrence or protection, although that's included in assurance, but thinking about really what we're all after is, is open and free access to the space environment, not being hindered, and making sure our assets on orbit are, 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 are safe up there and they can be used on a sustainable basis. Um, and that's really what an assurance-based strategy is all about, making sure that we have that access to space capabilities on an ongoing basis. And that really is enabled not by just developing you know, things like deterrence or counter space capabilities, but it's also put into place by space governance structures on the basis of a, a shared set of strategic objectives. Um, following that, we looked at um, the issue of, of opt optimizing the use of resources. There was a part of the project that dealt with strategic management. And the idea being that we should have a strategy that also allows us to focus on capabilities, a capabilities-based approach. And this is very, very critical in terms of how we begin to think about our space industrial base, uh, how we begin to think about a government role in the commercial space sector, for example, and how that hinders or enables that sector uh, effectively, particularly when we're talking about capabilities, because most of the capabilities that are developed out there are developed by that commercial sector you know, on, on contract to government very often, but clearly we need that commercial side um, to be fostered. Uh, that, that leads kind of to the space economics part where how can we develop a strategy that's going to enable versus constrain space commercial activities and the industrial base. You know, clearly inter, you know, partnerships with the commercial sector are very, very critical. Uh, the National Security Space Strategy, for example, the National Security Space Policy talks about this. Uh, our national space policy talks about this. Um, so what is, the real, what is the real role? And clearly a, a, a strategy can provide guidance for the government for trying to facilitate a more effective role. So we don't have inconsistencies like on one hand trying to promote the sector while on the other hand having in place uh, draconian export controls that are a problem for a sector that's very globalized um, and, and characterized by many uh, multinational uh, alliances. A uh, couple other areas, getting to, to the end here. One is on space launch. Uh, clearly that's foundational, and clearly right now we, we lack an overarching strategy for space launch. Uh, I think what was interesting from the analysis done in this area was that although we tend to think of cost as a barrier, for most actors, uh, cost tends to be a secondary or lower priority. Uh, clearly what we're after is access to space, ensuring launch reliability, robustness, performance, safety assurance, schedule assurance, things of that nature. Um, and that, that was interesting in terms of trying to think about space launch, in particular space launch being you know, foundational to all the sectors. That's clearly one area where you could develop a very, very effective uh, strategy. And then lastly, um, we looked at Earth observations. And how would you go about trying to manage Earth observation data as strategic information? 
Um, what are the sharing mechanisms? And, and, and there is activity going on. Clearly, there, there's, there's an Earth Observations Group. There's a Earth Observation Systems of Systems are developing to try to coordinate this. Uh, there's a lot of work in this area of effectively managing that. Clearly, that ties in as well to the critical strategic area that was mentioned earlier today regarding uh, climate change and all that. I mean, Earth observation being the, the basis of the knowledge that we have that really provides us better insights into global climate change uh, assessments. Uh, just to summarize, when we also look at foreign space programs, but I, but I won't go into that. Um, we won't have really time for that today. But just to kind of quickly um, summarize what were some of our key conclusions here. Um, and this kind of highlights some of the comments I made earlier, but I'll just read here from the last part of the, the introduction. Um, we need the intellectual foundations, we need the process, we need the political will, and we need the strategists. Um, we need to use strategy to overcome the political challenges that are out there, right, to get those cross-domain, cross-sector uh, partnerships in place to make that integration and coordination uh, possible. Uh, we need to have uh, access to space capabilities. We need a strategy of assurance that's out there. Uh, and what really allows for that to occur is, is finding a set of st st uh, shared strategic objectives that, all, that all actors can agree on to develop responsible space behavior. Um, we need to optimize and harmonize that I talked about earlier. Uh, we need to be able to leverage the capabilities uh, that are out there. Uh, and all that is very, very critical because, again, strategy is fundamentally about coordinating and, and integrating. Um, it can also help us in terms of the cooperation, the international partnerships that are out there. And we have to always keep in mind that it's an interdependent environment. So even thinking about strategy on a global basis makes some sense. What, what is interesting, although I can talk about it specifically, a lot of the foreign, uh, most major foreign <coughs> space programs don't have strategies either. I mean, most, most people have put forward policies. Strategy is lacking. So I think there is an, a window of opportunity here to work with uh, other space actors, whether government, commercial, in terms of trying to think about what are our shared set of strategic objectives and how we go about specifically trying to make that happen through some, time of, through some type of uh, strategic uh, guidance. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, a broad coverage of a, of a range of, uh, of issues from a very immediate uh, legislative to uh, larger uh, philosophical uh, frameworks uh, they're going to be facing uh, the next administration. Um, I guess one thing that uh, I was listening for that, uh, that I, didn't, uh, I didn't hear um, but maybe then throw in is uh, administrations, as we all know, don't always have control of their own agenda. Uh, stuff happens. Stuff shows up in the inbox. Uh, accidents happen. Uh, other events uh, occur that you then have to react to um, that you didn't uh, didn't plan on. Um, so, what I wanted to do is ask each of the panelists to maybe propose what they think might be the most important headlines that might show up um, in uh, in the next uh, next four years uh, that will either be a forcing action or something maybe not anticipated or or desired. And uh, I'll start with uh, saying. Uh, uh, if we have a problem in maintaining um, logistic support for, uh, for Space Station or if we have a bad day uh, aboard Space Station as uh, one of the things that will uh, likely, uh, likely could potentially drive events if that occurs. But start with you, Marshall. 
I, I certainly agree with that one. And any sort of a catastrophe, I think, would be a game changer. And so, since you uh, took the best one, you can elaborate on it. <laughs> so, I'll say that the same is true for uh, private human spaceflight. And I think that when the inevitable first accident happens with one of these private vehicles, whether or not there are government astronauts aboard, I think it's going to be a very important watershed event, one way or another. Satellite export control reform passes. I mean, that would be a huge headline for a lot of us. <laughs> Holding off for that one. Um, I think in the same vein of a, of a, uh, of a lapse in communications, um, I think there's a, a real challenge going on right now between military budgets and military communications requirements, and satellite fits a lot of those gaps, whether military or commercial satellite. And I think a headline of some military operation that had um, less than success because the lack of communications would really change the environment for how the DOD thinks of their communications and how they think of the commercial satellite sector filling that gap. Sorry. Oh, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Let me drill down that a little bit more. Yeah. We had recently had an article by a person from DISA saying large amounts of capacity mm -hmm. simply aren't being used. So does mm -hmm. it matter if it was a lack of capacity, a technical capability, or would it be because there was a cultural organizational mismatch that led to non-support? You know, from what I hear from the warfighter organizations, it doesn't matter what's used and what volumes where. If you don't have it when you need it, where you need it. That's the lapse. So I think it's the flexibility. It's not so much the volume. Um, and I think the the there's a lot of pressure now on um, procurement architectures, on planning, and ensuring that those resources are not just um, uh, prepositioned, but are available for the un unexpected. And then I wanted to throw another headline out, which is any major sports event is disrupted from RF interference. <laughs> Let me tell you right now, television disruption is something that we think about all the time in the commercial satellite sector. And I don't know that spectrum planners who are trying to think about how to squeeze more services in our spectrum think about an interruption in World Cup soccer, in the, in the broadcast for any NFL game. But <laughs> that would be a headline. I'm super fired up that. <laughs> I think it'll take a little pressure off the Zoom, but it is one that Can I add another one? So another good one would be an asteroid definitely is going to hit Earth in three years. Not like tomorrow, not like 30 years. This yeah. intermediate time period when you're really stuck three years. That's what nuclear weapons are for. <laughs> <laughs> but not, not ICBMs. No. <laughs> Suffices. Um, I would probably have to say that, you know, in the middle of a tense geopolitical situation, there is a malfunction with a national security satellite that ends up escalating matters because of the ambiguity of what happened. Um, that, I think, is pretty realistic, and it might not be the United States involved in that. It may be some other country. Um, and if we're going to go, you know, big picture, I would say, well, there's a severe solar space weather event. Um, that's going to be a very bad day. Um, I'm going on a different track. I mean, I would say commercial activities in space, but, but going beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, commercial lunar bases, commercial activities directed towards Mars. I mean, clearly, we, we, it was mentioned today as well, commercial activities uh, related to, to uh, lunar base potentiality, as well as, you know, uh, Elon Musk recently spoke about uh, maybe sending on a private basis humans to Mars within a, a decade or so. So 
I think an emergent paradigm is that the commercial sector on a more private basis, not through government contracting, is going to engage in some of these activities and some of these gaps where the government maybe is no longer the dominant player. And I think that's what's, what's instructive there is that we need that the strategy, again, going back to that thinking, in terms of how do we promote that sector and work with that sector. Maybe it's a public-private arrangement. Maybe it's other arrangements that we can, we can put forward. Okay. So let me then throw it out to the uh, to the audience. Uh, is there a, a topic uh, you think that will come up in the next administration, next four years, uh, that we've uh, that we've missed, or a headline that you think that we've missed, or any questions you'd like to throw at any of the panelists, John? First of all, I have to say I don't think this is going to happen. But <laughs> if in 2015 China announced its intention to land people on the moon before the decade is out. Do you think it would produce a reaction? <laughs> that okay? Other than grumbling. Other than grumbling. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bruce was on the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I was to uh, compliment uh, Brian for uh, making the point about space weather and uh, some malfunction. I've, I've long believed that one of the greatest security threats we face in space is Murphy's Law and Mother Nature together. <laughs> particularly happening uh, during a crisis. Uh, I want to ask that would make another slightly different point. One thing that was not mentioned uh, had to do with the scale of things is not too huge, but the whole question about space code of conduct and the idea of some kind of international agreement. I had this, the administration was pushing that. I had the sense that they wanted to lie low at least through the election because it, it did generate some uh, opposition uh, on Capitol Hill. And I wanted to ask uh, people what they thought about uh, prospects for that now in a a second term of the election behind the, uh, the administration, and then uh, uh, also more generally about what they thought about uh, uh, Chinese actions on the military side in space and the possibility of something, uh, you know, another ASAT test or something, an ambiguous test, something like that. So I, I throw that, both of those, that warhead, if you will, <laughs> and uh, the reaction. We're going with the nuclear analogy today. Okay. Sure. Um, <laughs> let, let me uh, let me just sort of uh, try on the uh, uh, that I see uh, uh, Brian will have a comment on the on the code of conduct. Um, I guess I would say that uh, it really keys off of Marsha's first point about trust. Um, I think that um, uh, the international space code of conduct. I continue to believe contrary to maybe some of my colleagues, that it's a good idea in principle. It's a transparency and confidence building measure, something we ought to do. I think uh, that there is some substantive material on the table that, uh, that the Europeans have come up with that's worth talking about. However, I believe it's largely dead uh, for the moment. And the reason I believe it's largely dead is because a lack of trust among many of the developing space countries uh, that would, are really the most used to it. We don't need a space code of conduct with Europe. We don't need one with Japan. We need one really with a lot of these emerging countries. And the diplomatic aspect of that has been so largely fumbled so badly that I don't really think that there is a prospect right now for, for how, to, how to move forward with it. Domestically, I think it's also largely prog problematic uh, because the uh, Congress, the lack of trust with the Congress on a lot of space issues uh, also affects this area. Um, I think that um, 
there are enough members of Congress who feel that uh, if the administration were to push this, it's really simply code for a much more comprehensive uh, arms control related treaty that they don't really feel confident in. Um, I don't think that's completely fair, but I think that that, uh, that feeling is, is there. So I think rebuilding trust with the Congress and finding another way forward diplomatically to engage with emerging space countries is a prerequisite before we can constructively move ahead on a space code of conduct, even though the idea, I think, in the abstract is still worthwhile. I mean, I definitely agree with Scott on the idea. The idea of it is definitely worthwhile. Um, the problem, I think, is that the U.S. isn't driving the train on this. The European Union is. And there's not, you know, once that decision was made to let the European Union take the leadership role on the Code of Conduct, there's not a lot the U.S. can do to address some of the issues Scott's talking about in terms of the international arena and fix the diplomatic issues. Um, and so I'm... I would say my opinion is probably mostly dead, um, not quite completely dead. Uh, but I do think that there is value in having these discussions at the international level between all these different space-faring states, whether or not there is a code that comes out the other end, a specific document. I think having these discussions, you know, different countries, you know, viewing or airing their viewpoints on what they think is priority. Uh, our priorities in terms of long-term sustainability, security, and stability, I think those are very useful. I'll try to talk about the China question. I think that if China launched an ASAT attack against somebody else's satellite, that that would certainly be a headline and a game changer. I don't think it's likely they're going to do that, however. And if they conduct another ASAT test of their own, I just don't think it's going to create much of a stir outside of the national security space community and you know, sort of been there, done that. And, and what are we going to do about it anyway? I mean, our, our fates are so closely tied, China and the United States, on the economic front. There aren't a whole lot of things that we can do about it unless they take this major next step, which is to actually you know, attack somebody else's satellite. To, to come back to the code of conduct, I think that you're right, the multilateral approach at the UN is pretty much dead. But it's not because it's dead at multilateral level that it shouldn't be tackled at, you know, a more limited number of countries, uh, and that would be, you know, the, the first building block to, to grow the, the the membership, and it would create a standard. Uh, yeah, and I guess the uh, I agree with that, but I, I think that the the um, dilemma is is that the people that are most easiest to create a code of conduct with are the people we are least worried about. <laughs> Um, and so, therefore, uh, and I would include even, even, even arguably the Russians and the Chinese, uh, although much needs to be done with China and there's a lot that could be done with, with Russia. Uh, I think that the, to, to use the buzzword, uh, the game changer, uh, that would change the situation, the dire situation that I described, uh, is if many of these developing countries or all space-faring countries felt that they had some new equity uh, at stake in the system. Uh, obviously, having a peaceful, stable, sustainable space environment is deeply in U.S. national interest. But other people are not going to agree to that simply to make us happy. Uh, I think we made more progress on things like orbital debris and space sustainability as more countries realized their nationals were at risk aboard space station. Now, you can make a, you know, a rational analysis saying that risk wasn't that significant and the cross-sectional area was this or that. It doesn't matter. It was the fact that there was an emotional connection 
that made, made people go, oh, our, our guys are at risk. Okay, this sort of matters to us. And oh, yes, we now also understand there are these other things that we depend on, like you know, RF transmissions to sports stadiums and such. Um, so what is it that would give people a sense of, of involvement? Well, and the people who know me know that I've been an advocate uh, for uh, you know, human return to the moon and so forth. Not only because I believe in that in and of itself, but because it offers many different opportunities for, for many developing countries, even very small ones, to participate in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, meaningful ways that are not present in the current approach of talking about Mars or asteroids. So I think a game changer for both the code of conduct and our civil space exploration policies would be to revise both. Uh, and find a way for them to engage because I think our security interests and our civil interests are actually deeply intertwined at an international level, but we haven't really given anybody a reason to engage with us on those areas. We've treated them in separate stovepipes, as, as Elgar has said. Hey, if I could have one comment to that. Um, I agree with Scott. There's the diplomatic fumbling, and uh, actually, this personnel turnover has led to some issues with the code of conduct. I, I, I personally, if you look at my inbox and my tasking sheet. I, I wouldn't call it dead. I don't know if there's anyone in the State Department here to verify that, but I get a lot of stuff in the inbox related to it still. But I, I do think that um, what's troubling is, even amongst our allies, the move away from something like a, uh, the code and to more uh, legally binding issues such as PWT and those sorts of things. I think that that is, uh, will take us at least in the near term in a very difficult direction. Chris? I couldn't help but notice earlier when you asked the question about headlines, most of the headlines, if not all the headlines that were brought up were negative. Do you have any thoughts about... We're in Washington. Mine <laughs> <laughs> was a negative. I'm outside of Washington. <laughs> See? I'm in Colorado. I'm in Tour Control Passing. I'm just trying to think of, are, are, there, are there headlines that think, you think could over the next four years that instead of making us change direction would be able to propel us? <laughs> what was that? Curiosity finding something. But. You know, a lot of people wonder, you know, what if we discover life? And uh, I think if we discover life on Mars, it's going to be an odd event, really, because people expect us to find life on Mars. It's more of a surprise if we don't find it. So I, I think finding intelligent beings on Mars, yes, that would be a surprise. But this itty-bitty bacteria and everything, I just think that people would say, oh, yeah, well, we knew that all along. You know, if uh, intelligent life arrived in a spaceship and landed on the Washington Monument grounds, as in my favorite movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, that would be a game changer. It certainly would. But uh, not the stuff within our solar system. That's my own view, anyway. I think what you have to look at there is imagine the interagency debate if the saucer lands, okay, on it. And you turn it over to the State Department or Department of Fish and Game? <laughs> who who has pressed The Park Service takes care of that. Park Service is responsible for the mall. Um, John has left, but I wanted to just follow on with what he mentioned about uh, China landing on the moon. I think what would be more interesting to me is the is if China did that, but also announced that they were going to establish a permanent moon base. And what would be interesting in that context would be, do they decide to do it unilaterally, or do they invite international partners? And I think that will generate quite a lot of buzz. And one other thing I would just mention, like just, a, yeah, just, just uh, throw out is um, another uh, negative uh, potential headline that I worry about, and I know it's been a lot discussed in other circles, is uh, what if um, there was an event that it involved 
sophisticated and extensive GPS jamming and spoofing. Well, I was going to address the, the, the China part, and it's come up a few times. Um, you know, I was involved for, for several years when I was with the uh, Air Force Academy, the Eisenhower uh, Center for Space and Defense Studies. We had a, an ongoing U.S.-China dialogue project. You know, some very, very interesting findings regarding that. And, and related to that, I would put out a more immediate positive headline where, where I would see forthcoming, maybe within the next uh, four years here under the Obama administration, an opening on a government-to-government -government cooperative basis for space cooperation between the U.S. and China. Maybe, maybe in resumption of some of the commercial uh, cooperation that had existed prior to the whole uh, ITAR uh, issue back in the late 80s, early 1990s. Um, you know, we have to understand that China is, is just like the United States, wants to develop comprehensive across-the-board space capabilities. Uh, and I think we have to recognize that. We, we, we tend to think that everything that China does is a threat to us. And the reality is, in talking to both Chinese academics, Chinese bureaucrats, Chinese people in the military, that wasn't the sense we got out, out of our dialogue project over three years that, 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 that I, you know, I was involved during that time with the project. Uh, the sense that we got is that, that China is, is seeking to cooperate. There is a cooperative strategy within China of, of cooperating with other space-faring entities. It clearly is cooperation between China and the Europeans. There's cooperation going on between China and even developing space programs in Africa right now. Um, so that's clearly part of the interest of China, and one of the sense that we got is that China really is looking to the United States to take the initiative and lead in thinking about cooperation with China. So I could see that as a new emergent paradigm, and, and it, it, it kind of debunks some of the conventional thinking, I think, in Washington, D.C. regarding China as this threat. I don't think they're really trying to directly compete with the United States. They want to develop their own power base and capabilities, yes, but I think they're also desperately crying out cooperate with us, and we'd be more than happy to do that. I think one of the things I would, I would, I would say is, is I think Elgar is quite correct in that there is probably an overemphasis when we look at China to really think it's about us. And it's not about us. It's about them, and actually it's about them in the region. And the reason why uh, the rise of Chinese space capability is important is not because they're doing things that we haven't done in the past or can't do ourselves and separate from the whole issue of counterspace and cyber attack, which is a whole, a whole other sort of subject. The reason why it's important is what it does to the politics in Asia. And so the impact of Chinese space capabilities on Japan, on India, on Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, and therefore what that does to the U.S. role as a Pacific power, that is what matters. Uh, and I don't think that we've really sufficiently internalized that or, or thought about what the regional impacts of Chinese growth is. To the point about internationalization, I would say that the Chinese very, very much have an international strategy and a perfectly sensible one. Uh, one of the things that I pick up uh, when I'm over in the UN offices is that China has been into the Office of, of Outer Space Affairs and has made very serious funding proposals uh, to help fund researchers to put experiments aboard their space station. And they very much are clear this is open to international cooperation. Uh, they were rather cheekily asked by a friend of mine, does that include the Americans? Yes, it even includes the Americans. Um, and so they are seeking to improve utilization of their space station. Uh, and they get a lot of foreign policy benefits from it. Uh, they expand the range of utilization beyond Chinese researchers. They get people to come to China to operate in their laboratories and, uh, and uh, learn from each other. And, you know, I can't blame them. 
Okay, but that's an example of having a strategy already in place, and you don't have to have a lunar base to execute uh, a strategy like that already. And so I think they're already on that path. Laura? Um, I have a question, and maybe Marsha would be the one to answer it, but um, I want to say that starting two years ago and last year as well, there were several proposals out there to reorganize how we do certain things, whether it be having NASA take care of weather satellites all through, you know, and not having no idea with that. Um, or uh, whether it be the NASA administrator lasting for 10 years as opposed to, you know, um, or removing DOD from Landsat, and, and, you know, there were several proposals to, to dramatically change how we do certain things. Um, do you think any of these will, will continue in the upcoming administration, or were these more of a reaction to the budgetary crisis and kind of drawing attention to that? Well, looking at each of them, I think that the issue of NOAA and transferring the weather satellites from NOAA to NASA was a reaction to a lack of confidence in NOAA's management abilities. And I can only hope that NOAA is working really hard to show that it knows how to manage satellite programs. And of course, it's now had, I think, three independent reviews. And now they've got this request out for public information. So I think that they are making efforts to try and say, yes, you know, we're talking to all the right people and they're giving us his advice and yes, we're going to follow the advice because as soon as the Tom Young report came out, they, the very same day, because they arranged it that way, uh, you know, Noel put out a directive and the uh, Deputy Secretary of Commerce put out a directive saying that they were going to follow Tom Young's advice, which is always a good idea, by the way, because Tom Young's a very smart guy. <laughs> and, uh, and he fits their goals program and lots of national security space programs. But anyway, so I think that Noel <clears throat> is trying <clears throat> Whether they succeed or not, I don't know. If you look at the language in the continuing resolution about that, it seemed as though the Senate was sort of giving Noah a pass and saying, you know, we'll, we'll look at this again uh, when they get to the rest of the uh, fiscal 13 appropriations. But I think that that is this trust issue and the lack of confidence issue. The Landsat question, I'm worried about Landsat. I don't know what's going to happen with it because, you know, the people who fund the Department of Interior see that USGS doesn't have any money either and they do not want this unfunded mandate landing in USGS's lap. NASA doesn't want to have to pay for it anymore, but it's a very useful satellite system, so I don't know the solution to that. So I think that is, it's a, it's a budget crunch kind of thing that no, nobody wants to actually have to pay for a very useful satellite. And uh, the 10-year NASA administrative thing, and I don't know what the House is going to do about its schedule of hearings, because there was going to be hearing this week and next week, and the one this week's been postponed because the House is going to be in session. So now there may or may not be one next week. I don't know what the deal is. But they were supposed to talk about that Space Leadership uh, Preservation Act that has the 10-year NASA administrator in it. And I just I, I see that as a solution in search of a problem. To me, the tenure of the NASA administrator is not the issue. The issue is that the policy changes, and the policy is going to change no matter how long the NASA administrator has done his job. We had a tenure NASA administrator, Dan Golden. Dan Golden was a very smart politician, and so when he worked for one president, he followed what that president said, and when he got a new president, he did what that president said. And so, you know, this is what you have to do. So I, I just don't see how that solves any of the problems facing NASA. But others are welcome to comment. I guess I would just point out that in the Landsat case, and to the point about it really belongs really back at the White House, the fact that you have a program that is very useful but no one wants to pay for, Yes, ultimately that's a problem of the appropriations committees, you know, who do provide the money. 
But you know, usually it's up to the White House to propose what to do with these things and to put things in a president's budget request that show how you solve that. And the fact that Landsat has been the story it's been uh, is indicative across multiple administrations of weakness on the policy side uh, within the White House. And therefore, you don't have, in my mind, a strong OSTP, and I'm a veteran of that place, uh, that can counterbalance uh, with OMB. And so decisions are driven by budgetary reasons, not driven by policy reasons. And so just as you can have imbalances in the Congress between authorization and appropriations, we've had an ongoing systemic problem uh, between um, the OSTP side uh, and OMB side on, on programs like this. Uh, it's not so bad on the national security side because the NSC is, is a strong player. Uh, they have issues, but it's not quite as stark, I think, as the, as the Landsat case is. And just you know, to, to comment on that, so the White House did put it in the budget proposal and Congress rejected it. In fact, it was very similar to the debate over restarting plutonium protection with the Department of Energy, which is another good thing to do. But the Department of Energy committees, even though it was in the President's request, said no. And the Interior committees, even though it was in the President's request, said no. So I, I don't know how you fix that other than having a very strong White House policy who is willing to uh, fall on their sword in order to get Congress in there and, and make it worth their while to give up some political chips in order to get Congress to do that. Yeah, I, I, I've got to say thank you for bringing up the plutonium case. That's a thing I think where the administration actually does deserve credit uh, for putting uh, funding proposals in uh, after some resistance uh, on the part of OMB initially uh, for restarting plutonium production. And so uh, that's uh, probably one of those lower level issues that I think I hope get some attention and get some traction because if we don't restart domestic production of plutonium, we're not going past Mars, okay? Outer planets are just over. Uh, so that's a, uh, that's a long issue for the long-term future of the entire planetary science community. I just wanted to quickly emphasize what, what Scott mentioned because this is one of the critical insights as well in our space strategy project um, regarding political challenges. That, that basically without strategic thinking, a strategic process, and maybe even developing a, a real document of a strategy, uh, you know, the budgetary battles are going to dominate the process. And we're going to get these, these uncertainties, these difficulties, these trade-offs that may take place that aren't optimal for what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and I think that's very, very critical, you know, and at a more general level, you know, in terms of relating it back to why uh, strategy or strategic thinking, at the very least, is, is, is so necessary. Joel? Yeah, uh, Joel Hicks, Space Policy Institute. Um, I, I, I want to remind you, you know, climate change didn't happen overnight. That certainly has been the stimulus to put our energy policy, arguably, I think, on the track we need to. And I, and I think that'll be similar in the space arena. I think we can all agree budgets will probably drive civil, commercial, DOD to um, innovate. Um, and I guess my question is more organizationally. I mean, we, we have touch points in the DOD to try to leverage commercial products, operational response space office, we have the space test program. Well, we're pulling back on those. Um, and that leaves me with the question of, and my question to you is, do we need to create um, an organization, what have you, that will help us develop the technologies, the common technologies that all the sectors need, whether it's launch, whether what have you, dozens of things that, that will reduce costs in the long run. Do we need to do it? And who's going to do it? 
I, I think the answer is resoundingly yes, we need to do it, but I think we're in the still a relatively early period of the shift that was prompted not only by the budget, but also by the drawdown. Um, with the potential demise of the ORS office in the, in the space test program, um, I, I think there are folks asking, where do you trial? Where do you test? How do you get to orbit? With, with good ideas that aren't on a grand scale yet. Um, and I think that's something that hasn't yet been answered. I think there's still a lot of protection of programs uh, uh, in, the, in the face of budget contractions. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there, and I don't think the new thinking has emerged yet on how to do that. But I think the idea that that, that kind of um, new structure is needed is pretty universally seen. It, it'll be interesting. I would watch um, uh, SMC to see how they, how they step up into that sort of... Uh, sort of testing of innovation role. Let me take a little different answer to your question, because I think this is interesting in terms of what's going on in Japan. Maybe we can learn from others, uh, because we did look at foreign uh, space programs and their policies and, and strategy developments in the space area. But what's going on in Japan is kind of interesting, maybe instructive for, for how you can think about this. Not that they don't have their own implementation problems, they do. But there is a basic law of space activities and a basic plan for space activities in Japan, and that's been around for the last four years. And it's also supported by both a minister and a strategic headquarters for space activities. Uh, and they also even have a space strategy office at the cabinet uh, level. And I think what all this illustrates, you know, maybe a lesson to take home to the United States is that, and this seems to be a common theme throughout our, our space strategy thinking, if you're going to make it happen, you need to have not only the top-level commitment I talked about, but you need to have the right organizational structure and the right bureaucracy in place, because you have to have that bureaucratic discipline to get the nuts and bolts moving forward, whether it's sharing R&D technology or, or, or something else, because ultimately it's that bureaucracy that's, that's making it happen. And if you don't have that bureaucratic discipline in terms of some type of overarching strategic uh, context at the bureaucratic level, it becomes very, very difficult, and you get bogged down into all these other battles that we've talked about. <clears throat> I would just argue that the bureaucracy needs to change with the challenge, and I think what we're finding is a uh, sort of a conceptual shift between owning and operating everything uh, by the military of their own and looking at more of a cooperative um, approach to their space requirements, whether it's with commercial, whether it's um, whether it's internationally. And I don't know that the bureaucracy has adapted to that to that possibility yet. Um, Crystal Fire, East West Center. Um, thank you for bringing up Japan. I actually was just there, and something that was talked about a lot was the humanitarian assistance or disaster relief aspect of um, space technology. And I was curious as to sort of what kind of priority that has within the U.S. government, and also if it is sort of um, potential avenue for enhancing. Obviously, a lot of sort of multilateral approaches are going on right now for that. But does that will that potentially maybe in the future lead to better? bilateral relations between, you know, countries that have sort of strained relations in space, including Japan, China, U.S., China. Well, I think um, one of the, if you look in sort of the international sort of space, you know, uh, community, there, there are like four big sort of thematic areas that, that come up when the international space cadets all get together and talk, okay, you know, human spaceflight and all that stuff, unmanned robotic science, uh, planetary exploration. Disaster management um, and climate change. I mean, those are the, sort of the four big ones. 
And among the developing world, there's of course more interest in disaster management and in uh, climate change uh, in terms of the impact it has, because the impacts, as, as, as horrible as Sandy was, um, if we were some other country, uh, some other country in, in Asia-Pacific regions, we would be talking even much worse um, uh, you know, in terms of impact to, to the nation. So they're very, very much at risk, and so it's very, very much a, of a keen uh, interest. This is one of those areas where I think there are opportunities for the U.S. to be more in the background, but being supportive of countries in region. So to the extent that Japan reaches out to other countries in, in the region and uh, in, in promoting disaster management, or with India or with Australia, for example, uh, I think that is very much in U.S. national interest. Um, the, the, the sometimes, um, uh, I think it's somewhat simplistic, forgive me for it, but we have very good relations with most every country in Asia, except for North Korea, and even China. The relationships are nothing like they were with the Soviet Union in the really bad days. So most relations in Asia are actually pretty, pretty good. But it tends to be sort of kind of hub and spoke. It comes back to the U.S. Cross-Asian relationships are not so good. North-South Korea, uh, even tensions, uh, still remain tensions with uh, uh, South Korea and Japan. Uh, problems between China and pretty much every country around the South China Sea. Uh, so while our relations are fine, really the, the cutting edge problem is can things like disaster management and climate support be a way of improving cross-Asian relationships and can the U.S. support that in some way? Uh, that I think would be of, of deep, deep interest to the U.S., not in front but, is, but more behind. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Space so this isn't necessarily a future uh, headline because it is so mundane, but a potential scenario could be nothing's changed. And it could be a year from now, two years from now. And some of the issues that we're dealing with are so large that maybe only Congress can tackle them, in which case, well, don't hold your breath because you will die. But are there, are there things that can be done at, at perhaps a lower level Starting now, and I kind of look at the Space Data Association as an example of that, as things that can be done now to just make movement in any of the issues that have been brought up today that do not involve congressional action. Eventually, they will have to get to a new NASA Authorization Act, which can propagate to other areas. But, but in the meantime, what are some solutions? Well, I mean, the SDA issue, it's... It's been going on two more or more years now that the SDA has been in negotiation with Stratcom over some level of data sharing access to the catalog. Well, so, yeah, more than that. <laughs> um, and it gets to the point where it's not negotiations, it's just stalling. Uh, I mean, I think we're talking about issues that don't involve money. If they don't involve new money or changing authority, then they're kind of things can be done without Congress. That is certainly one that could be done. But for the moment, I don't think you're going to see, I mean, there aren't quite the incentives on the side, the national security side, to go ahead and make that deal, whatever that deal takes place. And, I mean, short of, uh, you know, suddenly some critical need on the national security side for that information, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So, I don't know. Uh, 
I actually think the, the list of items that I, I raised, maybe some of the ones we've, we've mentioned, don't require congressional activity. I think what they require is a recognition that the paradigm, the sort of capabilities, have changed and that interaction with industry is useful, that international cooperation is valuable, and the systems and structures that were put in place uh, without that assumption um, haven't yet adapted. Now, I think that's a, that's a general generalized activity that I think is not only completely apart from, not completely, but, but largely apart from congressional um, authorities, and for the most part is, um, is being explored now. And with, um, with one of the prompts for that to continue to evolve and, and you know, institutional change is not easy. Um, but one of the prompts is, is, uh, is I see it from, uh, from the companies that are innovating in technology and the innovating on orbit, um, the gap between uh, what is possible and what is, uh, what is planned for is, I think, driving a lot of change. I think one of the things you could do, and it requires maybe some, some money, but I don't think major authorizations and such, is for government agencies, DOD and NASA in particular, um, to um, think about what intellectual capital they need to have inside the agencies. Um, I think that uh, if nothing happens and we're on the current path we're in, in four years uh, we will find our agencies even more dysfunctional and more incapable of executing acquisition programs than they are now. Um, and the thing that is really necessary is to have smart people inside government who have hands-on expertise in actually doing space missions. Uh, I think NASA and their space science side, uh, with keeping some work, uh, you know, in-house the way they have with JPL and Goddard, uh, has been very, very smart. I think some of the problems you've seen on the manned spacecraft side is because there's not a lack of smart people, but there's a lack of people who have hands-on hardware experience. I think some of these suborbital uh, programs, uh, balloons, rockets, uh, uh, are opportunities uh, for government folks to kind of get their hands dirty again. I mean, industry recognizes this as well, and I think it is pretty good at protecting its, its intellectual interests. But I think government needs to think about what it needs to do in-house versus what it's going to send you know, outdoors. I mean, I, I cut my teeth on, uh, you know, balloon projects and, you know, zero-G aircraft and things like that. A lot of people I knew at NASA worked on old scout vehicle programs. There's a certain humility you learn in front of hardware <laughs> that is, that contract officers don't always get. And, and I think building that in-house is something that definitely could and should be done um, uh, because if nothing is done, we're on a bad, bad path. At, at very high policy level, and doesn't require, frankly, any money, but it requires, uh, I, I think, some change, I think is, is amending or updating uh, the civil space exploration part of the national space policy, uh, which I believe has, uh, is very, very deeply flawed in terms of not really providing opportunities for international participation. And one of the things that I've seen over the last four years uh, has been a movement away of other countries from the United States. And there are, people aren't really, you know, angry at us, or, 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 but they're mostly disappointed. And so we've seen the European reactions. Uh, Japan is under lots of pressure to pay attention to other more domestic issues in its space programs. Uh, it's going to have difficulty holding on to what it, the core strategic relationship with the United States in terms of the ISS. Um, Russia has been talking about returning to the moon and wanting to work with us on that. 
there is no way we're going to bring, in my opinion, I don't think there's any feasible chance of bringing China into the space station program, okay? Not going to happen. Uh, there may be Chinese experiments, there may be cooperation on science, if political conditions could change, and if somebody has a strategy going forward, I wouldn't preclude that. But uh, we're not going to be going to Mars uh, without doing something nearer term and, and easier to do in low Earth orbit. And that, to me, means, you know, the moon and starting with something that we're, many, many people can cooperate. And so that is a strategic problem in the national space policy to go fix, and the lack of hands-on expertise and intellectual capital inside the agencies is something we can also fix with, I think, a relatively small amount of money over the next four years. I would just uh, pick up on that a little bit and say that because budgets are going to be so tight forever, that agencies effectively managing what they're given is key to all of this, and that does not require any congressional action. So they're these smart people who are in government and need to know how to build hardware, yes, that's true, and they need to know how to manage money and they need to understand what the technology readiness level really is, not what they wish it was. <laughs> and they need to stop having these kind of cost overruns. That, that's critical, and that is something that doesn't require Congress. And not to uh, push your patience any longer, we're slightly over, over 2 o'clock. Uh, but I'm sure some folks will be happy to uh, maybe answer individual uh, questions afterward. But I'd like to ask for a round of applause for our panelists.